Uh, one of the, uh, the major aspects of history when you're, if you've ever taken a course in, you know, like we had, if you remember high school, if you had high school history, I didn't pay attention at all, almost flunked American history in, in high school, uh, was the kingdoms um, through history. It's usually divided out into this way. There's a kingdom, usually if you take ancient history, usually starts with Egypt and then it moves on. Uh, you know, through Greece, through Rome, maybe a little Babylon, and that, uh, you know, they show you maps and stuff, and it's a big snooze fest. But it's true that we divide, um, and even the Bible does the same thing, that periods of time uh, pass through kingdoms. And one kingdom arises, and then it falls, and another one arises, and it falls, and, um, you know, and, and usually in your history course, you end up with the Roman Empire, which is the great, great empire. But then that falls. No one ever thought it would, but it did. And um, so on. They never last. The kingdom of heaven is a thing, right? We saw it. We see it in the gospel. And it's actually the entire goal of the Old Testament. God's revelation of this kingdom and that kingdom and the kingdom of Israel, that it was God's nation, God's kingdom. And they fail, they fall, and but yet God continues to promise a kingdom. And that kingdom is everlasting. That kingdom is forever, which would make sense. If it's God's kingdom of heaven, it can't be limited. And that kingdom has a king. It's amazing in uh, writers of, about the Bible or those, uh, you, in, in some cases, they forget about the king. <laughs> and you can't have a kingdom without the king. And he's in the Old Testament throughout. And, uh, and then there's the people that are in the kingdom. The king is the chief cornerstone. He, that's what he's described as. And there's has, there has to be subjects to the kingdom. And God is making those subjects. Or he, he has promised to make those subjects. And certainly, as the Bible depicts, none of us are ever qualified for this kingdom. In, in our world, you're born into it. right? You're born an American. And so you're a part of America. If you, wherever you're born, there's, there's where you are. That's what you call yourself. And in this case, as we saw last time, the, the, it doesn't matter where you're born. What matters is if you're born again or made new. And those are the only ones qualified to be in this kingdom. Which, again, makes sense. If the kingdom is of heaven, it's eternal. The subjects of that kingdom have to be holy. The great question of the scripture is, how do the people become holy? So let's open up in Matthew 3, verse 11, and uh, let's uh, begin with prayer. Be thankful and grateful for God's word as we learn today about God's kingdom and the Holy Spirit's association with that kingdom, that uh, we uh, will find out how supremely blessed we are, even more so. And so we should be grateful and humble before God's word. And so let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together and hear your word. Thank you for all you do 
and for your faithfulness towards each of us, towards us as a church, towards our nation. Uh, as we celebrate this coming holiday, Father, which we, uh, to be the birth of your son, we are just so grateful for him because without him, we wouldn't even be able to talk to you. We wouldn't be able to have anything to do with you if it were not for him and his amazing sacrifice in our behalf. And so, Father, it's because of his sacrifice that we are blessed by the baptism of the Spirit. You've made us new through him. May we, Father, as your children, just become awed and amazed at what you have done. And we ask that through your word, each of us would see more of that and, and rejoice in it. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So the end goal of humanity, that's always a question, usually a philosophical one. Uh, The end goal, well, you know, what's actually philosophy more deals with where man is going or where society is going. Most of them, most philosophies are earthly based and therefore uh, don't really see an end other than complete annihilation or destruction if they uh, uh, think of that or pursue that, but yeah, the the end goal of humanity is it here on Earth, and is is that where it is? Uh, we're surrounded by a concrete world, and most of the ideologies and philosophies that are developed here on Earth deal with the Earth, and deal with the um, you know what is man going to do and how is man going to progress in this world. And so, is it here on earth? Is earth the only reality? And if that's the case, how depressing is that? It's just absolute depressing, uh, or, or of depression, to think that this is all that there is. And for some, think that, well, you know, you guys who believe in, in eternity and, and heaven, it just, you know, you're just doing that because you can't face reality. You know, and, and so if we can't, they accuse us of not facing reality. Um, it, amazingly, the, this concrete earth that we see around us is not actually the reality. It's a, anything that's of a temporary nature in comparison to eternity. And eternity is a long time. Anything of a, a temporary nature doesn't even show up in that chart. You know, so it, it has a... Uh, an aspect to it that is absolutely not of reality. So uh, today we look at, you know, what has God done here to us in order to make us a part of this kingdom that's not of this earth. And it is an amazing thing that he has done. First off, to know what the word baptism means. And baptism means to be identified or immersed And so it did mean, as uh, we've seen already, to dye a piece of clothing, to dunk something in water. If you dipped your cup into a bigger vessel and and drew out some water or wine or whatever, that was called baptismos, and there was baptism. So what we're talking about here is moving from water to something that's real. Water's ritual. The reality of being baptized by the Spirit is that you are immersed in God, in Christ, the Son of God, and the Holy Spirit indwells you, and you're forgiven of all your sins, and you're put into the body of Christ forever, and you're given a spiritual gift in that place in the body, 
and a ministry that God personally designed for you. And when I say ministry, I mean it's the work that God wants you to do. And all of that is given to us when we believe in Christ. The vehicle that God chose to do this is this term, this phrase, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Astoundingly, it was prophesied in the Old Testament in several cases. We'll look at them today. Uh, And this baptism of the Spirit is always, and in every single case that it's mentioned in the Old Testament, and in John's, in Matthew chapter 3, right? Repent for the what's at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, The baptism of the Spirit is always associated with the kingdom of God. And when we think about it, we don't have to think about it too hard or too long. It makes sense that if if the kingdom is holy and of heaven and righteous, Well, the subjects have to be as well. The subjects of the kingdom have no place in it if they themselves are not holy, righteous, and just, and justified. There's no sound back, no signal. Uh, Well, there we go. The sound guy was here yesterday. Um, We're back. All right, so, um, yeah, well, uh, I'll tell what's his name, and then we'll, we'll figure it out. We, we might have to get a new microphone system, and then Satan will attack that as well. But <laughs> uh, So, um, this, uh, let's look at Matthew 3.11. Yeah, every time I get on a roll lately, my microphone goes off. And then I can't, I don't know what's going on. Is it out again? Yes? Okay. Let's all be calm. No, nobody need to get excited. Um, we could try another channel. But then we'd have, oh, it's back again. My mic's not going off up here. It's all green. So whatever interference is happening. But. Are we uh, are we good? We're good to go now. Interesting. Well, get me a microphone for my for Christmas. You know? No, I'm kidding. We we we've got enough money to get a microphone. We'll we're we're researching a new system as we speak. So, uh, Matthew three eleven. So John here uh, says, "As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance." But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. Uh, the Greek there says, I'm not fit to bear his, his shoes, his sandals. And uh, this, is a, a, this is a term for the lowliest servant, uh, meaning that I would be holding your shoes. Right? That, it's, that, that's what this Greek means. It means to bear up his shoes. And so the lowest of the lowest servants would be in charge of holding your shoes if such a thing happened. And John is saying here that he's not even that compared to the Lord. So it's a typical uh, of him and his humility. So he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. We've already actually talked about the fire part. We talked about that yesterday where the, the trees get chopped down and what don't, don't bear fruit. That's been the last couple classes and that fire would speak of the day of the Lord. And, um, but that's 
Not what we're looking at now, not so much. We'll see an example of it. But today we're focusing on the Holy Spirit. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff, 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 with unquenchable fire. Uh, then Jesus arrived from Galilee. Now that, that last part, in verse 12, speaks definitely that this fire that he speaks of is judgment. And um, so then in verse 13, that judgment comes at the end of history. Uh, well, or and also at a second coming, and part of it truly at uh, when Israel or Jerusalem is destroyed. But <clears throat> verse 13, then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John, to be baptized by him. It's different language than what the Pharisees. The Pharisees came for baptism or to baptism, and the uh, and Jesus comes to be baptized, and that is. Uh, the that is the um, the passive part of this verb. The passive means that he's going to be baptized by John. So in John, but John tried to prevent him. Naturally, he would, saying, "I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me?" But Jesus answering said to him, "Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill." All righteousness. Uh, we're going to pursue these uh, this whole thing later, uh, because all of almost every word in this back and forth between Jesus and John here is of extreme importance. But uh, <clears throat> we'll see what is all unrighteousness. We'll see that when he permitted, uh, then he permitted him, and after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove. And lighting on him. Lighting is a weird translation here, but it just means coming upon him uh, is uh, the Greek. Just uh, descending as a dove and coming on him. So my mic's out again. Oh, maybe it's me. Let me change batteries. That on? Uh, I hear myself. Okie doke. We should just start from the top. Maybe you keep a thought in your head. All right. So uh, the Holy Spirit descended as a dove on him, or coming upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So uh, the... The 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 uh, uh, the conversation or the the meeting here that we see between Jesus and John is um, uh, there's so much here that's of such importance. First off, John realizing that 
you know, I'm not worthy to be your shoe bearer. Never mind that I baptize you. But Jesus says, look, this is fitting. And fitting means that it's right. And it's right that we do this to fulfill all righteousness. Now, his, this all righteousness is the fact that Christ is going to identify himself with the sins of the world. That's him going into the water. And coming out of the water is identifying himself or resurrecting. So it's his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And that is going to fulfill all righteousness. That's actually the righteousness that we need to be a part of this kingdom. Because at the end of time, you know, when it comes to the end of all things, the last thing that Jesus does is hand the kingdom over to the Father. And so when he hands that kingdom over, that's, that's it. Curtains closed. History's over. And that is the last act before we're in an eternal kingdom where there's no more conflict, there's no more, you know, no more of this, these issues. Uh, the issues of history, of man, of sin, of fall, of everything. There's no more of that. Now, baptize in the Holy Spirit is always used with the verb in the New Testament. We say the baptism of the Spirit, but it's actually never used that way in the New Testament. Baptism being a noun uh, is always an act of God to be baptized. Right? It's always God acting every time that it's used with the Spirit. So our vernacular, and it's fine to say it, to say baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is fine. But it's just not used in the New Testament. I think that's you know, a good thing to know because it shows us that, um, that this act of baptism is an act of God. And it is always done by him to us. The phrase baptized in the spirit is almost exclusively in the context, in context of contrast with John's baptism and Jesus' baptism. Uh, in every single case, except for one, which is in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, where we're baptized by the Spirit into one body, uh, in this case, the baptism of the Spirit is almost exclusively in the context of the, uh, where it is contrasted with John's baptism. That's in Mark 1.8, Luke 3.16, John 1.33, Acts 1.5, and Acts 11.16. And so, water baptism is contrasted always with the baptism of the Spirit. And so it's not, it's not the idea that there's a progression, like there was a baptism of water and that was one thing and then baptism got better. It, well, it's, this shows us that the water baptism was always a ritual. It's a ritual that had a meaning behind it. For John, it was a repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It was towards Israel to prepare them or get them ready for the coming of their king, whether they would accept him or not. Uh, the baptism of the Spirit is a reality, not a ritual. And therefore, even though the same word is carried over, which is baptism, uh, it's not an immersion in, uh, in a ritual way. It's certainly not in water. Even the church age water baptism is not this. That's a ritual. This is the reality of God entering us into union with him and making us forever holy. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we have the similar language, but it's in the context of 
in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. And so we are placed in the body of Christ. John's baptism is a ritual, water baptism, and all rituals given from heaven are actually significant. Obviously, that John's baptism was significant. But if one doesn't know the meaning of the ritual, then the ritual means nothing. It is nothing. It has a meaning behind it. The church's water baptism is a ritual as well. It has the same meaning as the meaning of the Lord's baptism, except the Lord is being identified with the sins of the whole world. When a church-age believer is baptized, he is displaying his faith in the fact that he believes that Christ died for him and is resurrected uh, also. So, still, though, a ritual. Now, so what we're going to do today is move to the Old Testament and first go to Isaiah 32. And we're going to look at the idea at the background of the background of the idea of messianic the baptism of the holy spirit in association with the messiah is found in the old testament prophets who speak of an eschatological outpouring of the spirit of god now eschatology comes from the greek word eschatos which means last and last is this the last days is that what it's a study of the last days so the baptism of the Holy Spirit is found in the Old Testament prophets. And, uh, and in every case, as we'll see, it's in association with the kingdom of God. In every case. So look at Isaiah 32, verse 1. Now note the parallelism in the poetry. It's something always to look for when you're reading Jewish poetry, uh, Hebrew poetry. And it's very helpful to know that it's there because I think uh, most of us are not trained in any idea of what poetry is, and most people don't like reading it. And, and I think it's because we don't know uh, how the rules actually manifest themselves into a revelation. And in the case of Hebrew poetry, parallelism is generally the rule. So let's look at it. Uh, verse 1, Behold, a king will reign righteously, and princes will rule justly. See, those two lines are parallel to one another. But there's a king, and in the second line there are princes that are multiple. Behold, a king will reign righteously, and princes will rule justly. Each will be like a refuge from the wind and a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry country, like the shade of a huge rock in a parched land. And <clears throat> so each, meaning the king, the princes which here, we don't know yet that this would refer to the kingdom of God. In the context, we figure it out. But uh, the king is here. The princes are here. They rule. They reign justly and righteously. And because of that, there's refuge from the wind, shelter from the storm, uh, streams of water. There's water in a dry country or in an arid place and shade from uh, in a parched land. And... So what you have here are four lines that speak of wind, uh, storm, uh, drought, and, and actually uh, oppressive scorching sun. And so you have these uh, images of really weather. And the relief is not that God changes the weather. The relief is that God sends a king. And so we would ask ourselves, well, and it's meant to strike us as odd as we're reading this, that 
you know, if I say, well, I'm going to give you relief from the fact that you have no water, I'm going to send a king. And your response would be, well, is he bringing water? You know, or if I'm going to protect you from the wind, I'm going to send a person. I'm going to send a king. I said, well, what am I supposed to do? Stand behind him? Is he big? You know, so how does a king offer relief from wind, storm, drought, scorching sun? Well, uh, we recall the fact that our Lord, when he was sleeping in the boat and the disciples freaked out, that he was uh, awakened by the disciples and he rebuked the sea. He rebuked the storm, rebuked the wind. So in Psalm uh, 106, verse 9, thus he rebuked the Red Sea. This is speaking of God in Psalm 106, uh, a reference to this parting of the Red Sea. Thus he rebuked the Red Sea. And in Mark 4:41, uh, the disciples say to Christ after they witnessed him uh, uh, rebuke the storm, they say, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Indeed, who is this? And he controls it all. So the point being is that, you know, God's not in the business of changing the weather for us. God is in the business of expressing his power. He's showing who he is. Who is this king? Without a king, we have no hope. Without a king, we don't have a kingdom. Without a kingdom, we don't have a future. And how are we supposed to be a part of a holy kingdom when we're sinners enslaved to sin? By his amazing gift, as John said, I baptize you with water. One who is greater than I, who's the king, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is going to give his life. It costs him his life, and it costs and, and also to take on the guilt of all of your sin to make you be with him forever, to make you a part of his kingdom forever, to be with him. And so by his gift of baptizing you with the Holy Spirit, he can't just do it. He has to pay for your sins. Um, there has to be the forgiveness of sins before anybody can enter the kingdom. And so he has to die, and hence his baptism which is his entering the water, identifying himself with the sins of the world, coming out of the water, is his victory and resurrection, his ascension and session as king. So look at Isaiah 32.3, describing the benefits that come to the subjects of the kingdom. Then the eyes of those who see will not be blinded, and the ears of those who hear will listen. The mind of the hasty will discern the truth. And the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak clearly. So eyes, ears, mind, tongue. Right? So it's a parallelism to reveal to us. And again, it's poetry. It's poetry being used to reveal a truth. Uh, it's not so much the concern of God that people are going to get better hearing or they can speak a little clearer. It's, this is the, the making out of humanity something that is imperfect and wrong and sinful and fallen into something that is worthy of the kingdom of God. And how in the world is that going to be done? How does God do that? Well, we know the answer, but if you're reading Isaiah and you're living 800 years before Christ, you don't know how is God going to do this. You might have some insight to it, but you don't know everything or certainly the, the full breadth of what it means to be the Christ or what the Christ is going to do. 
So, this is the promise of the future for Israel at its second coming. It is as true now in the believer, because, or it is true now in the believer, uh, we'll see here in verse 15, because the Spirit has been poured out in the church age on every believer. This has been a gift to the church, uh, and it is the fulfillment of what we see here. Look at Isaiah 32, 15. Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field is considered a forest. And this, after, um, if you continue reading there in Isaiah 32, that God is warning the people again. He goes back to warning them about their error, about their uh, lack of faithfulness to him. But then God goes back to hope. And this, you see this all throughout the prophets, that there's a condemnation, there's an accusation, there's a warning. It happens over and over. And then there's hope, and it's always interspersed in all the prophets. There's hope, and here's the, here's the point of hope. In verse 15, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, the wilderness becomes a fertile field. The fertile field is considered a forest. All right, so, and just like the people who stammer can now speak clearly, the desert is made into a, a paradise. And God can do this with a snap of his fingers, of course. It's just a manipulation of matter for him. It's easy. But it's the people that are in it. And hence, the most important part here is that until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. And notice the association with the kingdom. There's not going to be desert in the kingdom. It's going to be a fertile land. There's not going to be imperfect people in the kingdom. There's going to be perfect people. There's not going to be a kingdom without a king. There's going to be a righteous king. And concerning this kingdom of heaven, which John spoke of, Jesus as well. In Matthew 4, he says the exact same message. The Old Testament channeled this kingdom to the world. The whole Old Testament's about it. And the New, in the New Testament, it's realized. The idea of the kingdom of heaven or of God is not hidden in the Old Testament. The rule of heaven and kingship of Yahweh or Yahweh, Jehovah, however name you want to use, was the very substance of the Old Testament. The calling, the mission of Israel, the meaning of all its ordinances, all of its under, the underlying principles of all its institutions all point to a kingdom. All have meaning and purpose in a kingdom and a king. If there's no kingdom and king, all that Israel did all its history, all its laws, all its institutions are just purposeless. There's no point to them. There's no point to them if there is no end. But there is, and it has been always there, that God is going to establish with them a kingdom. They were looking for it. They desired it. That's why they, when Jesus said to the disciples who had come to believe him to be the Messiah, when he said he had to die, they were incredulous. And Peter even said, I forbid it. They didn't quite understand. But they did understand that the Messiah was to be a king. They didn't associate the king with a suffering king, which is that suffering servant, uh, which is right here sandwiched in between our passages in Isaiah 42. But we're going to go to Isaiah 43. Go to Isaiah 40, 44, sorry. Go to Isaiah 44, 3.
For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So same thing here in Isaiah 44. I will pour out my spirit. Same wording on your offspring and with the Holy Spirit, my blessing on your descendants. And um, again, it's associated with actual water, which we wouldn't be surprised about, as in you know John's water baptism is a cleansing. And so we see the association that God uses water as a method of cleansing, and but John's baptism is not actually cleansing. Is my mic out again? Man, uh, I just want to stop. <laughs> I got sleepers, hand pickers, and no microphone, and it's just driving me crazy. <clears throat> are we? Are we on? Off? All right, go to Ezekiel 36. I'm back on. Ezekiel 36, 23. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which have been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all lands, and bring you into your own land. So at the start here in this prophecy, we have, again, after like other prophets, uh, the same warning, warnings, condemnations upon the nation for their uh, revolt against God and here. But again, the hope, and it always is in the prophets, that there's a coming kingdom, that God is going to fulfill his promises. And, um, you know, for you and I, that's where we're going to be. That's the end goal. The end goal of all humanity is a kingdom, a perfect kingdom filled with perfect people whom God, by His grace, has made perfect. Uh, what is amazing here in the church age, so, well, I'll hold off on that. So then in uh, Ezekiel 36:25, then I will sprinkle clean water on you. Notice water is used again, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you and will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Notice that the spirit causes them to walk in God's statutes. And as I said, I I referenced this passage on Sunday. None of us can take any credit for the work that we do before God because he has made us the people that do such things. And he's given us the power to do such things. And it's by our faith that we're able to do such things. And so none of us ever, it's very easy for us to get proud of what we do in and for God, and uh, when you remember a principle like this, that truth is that you only do that which is good because God has enabled you to and empowered you to. Uh, Of course, your choices are in view, but your choices are faith in something that is magnificent. So I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. 
Lastly, go to Ezekiel 39, 39.25. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. I will be jealous for my holy name. They will forget their disgrace and all their treachery which they perpetuated against me and they will live securely on their own land with no one to make them afraid. When I bring them back from the peoples and gather them from the lands of their enemies, then I shall be sanctified through them in sight of the many nations. So again, here, an, a promise of the future hope, which is the kingdom. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God, because I made them go into exile among the nations and then gathered them again to their own land, and I will leave none of them there any longer. I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. So again, the promise of, see, this is the fourth passage, uh, two in Isaiah, two in Ezekiel, and finally one in Joel. Go to Joel chapter 2. The Minor Prophets always takes you a little bit to get there. Don't be embarrassed if you need to go to your glossary to find it. Uh, Joel chapter 2, verse 28. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. <clears throat> and so in this paragraph, which we call in poetry a strophe, or a, yeah, strophe, that um, Joel is the book that introduces this concept which runs through the Minor Prophets of the Day of the Lord. And the Day of the Lord is an awful thing. It's presented as that. It's a, it's a, uh, a terrible, terrible day. The Day of the Lord is the tribulation. The Day of the Lord is the, the, the final judgment upon Israel on them as a people and their nation for the sin that they have committed against God in the tribulational period especially the second half of that tribulation, which is the final three and a half years. And so we see uh, with the, this phrase, the day of the Lord, it's always awful, awful. But then here we see that phrase with something that's not so awful. Uh, and so <clears throat> look at verse 30. But Peter is going to, at Pentecost, Peter is going to quote both of these paragraphs. I will display wonders in the sky and on earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So in this depiction here, <clears throat> not the first one in Joel of the day of the Lord, there's an awfulness to it, which is the sun turned to darkness, the moon to blood, and it's a great and awesome day. But there's also those who are delivered. And the ones who are delivered are the ones who call on the name of the Lord. And so this brings us back to the paragraph before. I'll pour out my spirit in those days. And <clears throat> this is a prophecy just like Ezekiel and just like Isaiah that at the end, 
Israel is going to be blessed with a kingdom. And the subjects of that kingdom are all going to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, as we saw in Ezekiel, is going to indwell them. Uh, Here we see the language of being poured out on them. But it is a ministry uh, of indwelling of the Spirit, a filling of the Spirit to all those who are of Israel that exists with Christ in the millennium. So this is at his second coming. So Peter's going to quote this verse. Uh, Is the church fulfillment of this? Well, the answer to that, depend on what theology you, you apply to, but uh, the answer is truly yes and no. In the church, we receive the Holy Spirit, but in the church, we're not the true fulfillment of this. In the church, we have not had, and it didn't happen at Pentecost either, that the sun was turned to darkness or the moon was turned to blood or that people saw visions and people prophesied. Um, but what did happen was the Holy Spirit was given to men. And uh, that happened at Pentecost. So <clears throat> the, what this whole thing happens here is the issue of the king is finally going to come to his people, and he did. After hundreds and hundreds of years, the king came to his people. History was moving along, as, as all things happen when um, something spectacular does happen in human history that, you know, like say, for instance, the, the Caesar, the emperor in Rome, knew nothing about the fact that the Son of God was born in Bethlehem uh, or that the Son of God came to his people. There's plenty in Israel who didn't know of it either. People went to work like they normally did. People did what they normally did. And that something spectacular happens And another thing that was spectacular that happened was the ministry of John the Baptist. The ministry of John is a fulfillment of, he's prophesied in Isaiah and in Malachi, and he's announcing the kingdom of God is here. It's right at the door. It's near. And when Jesus comes, John says, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I baptize you with water for repentance. He baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. Now, we just saw in the Old Testament in five passages, in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, and Joel, that God is, he promised this, I am going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Here's the one, John said, who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So what happens if Israel says no? If they say yes, if they they do repent like John asked them to, demanded that they do, then we can only assume that, yes, the kingdom would be given to them, and they would be baptized, or the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon them. We all have to assume that the cross would have to happen, but, you know, people have thought about this in some way. Just imagine some scenario where, the, where Israel does accept him, uh, as some majority does. They repent, as John said. He goes to the cross and dies for the sins of the whole world. He ascends to heaven. He comes back and establishes his kingdom with that very generation. It didn't happen that way, but it's a way that we can think of it. So, but they said no. But here, that's the point I want to make. What in the world happens if, it, if Israel says no? And they did. There's no, if, there's, if Israel says no, we sink with them, don't we? The whole world does. Or does it? 
Because if, if Israel says no, if the covenants aren't fulfilled, then God's promises are nullified. Because he promised to Abraham, to David, through Ezekiel, through Jeremiah, I am going to establish my covenant with you. So what happens when Israel says no? And sure enough, what God did, the most amazing, amazing thing, uh, is to actually... So he takes the offer of the kingdom off the table for that generation. And so we all have to wait. Right. Well, no, no blessings of the kingdom come to anybody, but he didn't do that. What God did was he took certain parts of the new covenant and he gave it to the world. And without the kingdom. Like all you just saw in all five passages we saw here, the pouring out of the spirit is associated with the kingdom of God. Yet in the church, what God would do, Israel says no. God takes the offer off the table, but not completely. He says, for you, this generation, until I come back, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, until I come back, these things are not going to be given to you. And in this period of time, which we call the church, and it's the church and the tribulation, actually, that God pours out his spirit Upon mankind without the kingdom. The spirit is with the kingdom in these Old Testament passages. What happens in this age is the spirit comes without the kingdom. We're all members of the kingdom, but this world is not it. We're not in it. We're all members of heaven. We've been raised with Christ, seated with him in heavenly places, but we're not there yet. We're righteous and we live in an unrighteous world. And so this most amazing of things has happened. So go to Acts chapter 1. Even after his resurrection, after Jesus teaches them, after in Luke 24 at the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus spends, we don't know how long, it was at least one entire night, showing them how in the prophets and in the Psalms and in Moses that all that happened to him had to happen. And so he opened their eyes to what the true meaning of the Old Testament was. Uh, That's because he's the truth. He's the living truth. And in Acts 1, we find uh, that they're they're not understanding about what the kingdom, you know, the timing of it. Like, is it supposed to come now? So notice them, they say, gathering them together, he commanded them, in verse 4, sorry, Acts 1-4, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard from me. And here's one of the multiple times that the baptism of the Spirit is contrasted with water baptism of John. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? You see, they're still confused. And, you know, when he says, look, stay here, you're going to be baptized with the Spirit, they haven't a clue what this really means. 
They'll find out soon. Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Which is uh, reveals here another aspect of the Spirit-filled believer. The Spirit-dwelt believer in this age is a witness. We are a light unto the world. And that is a part of our ministry. So you receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And in Acts chapter 2, it does. He, He does. I shouldn't say it when it comes to the Spirit. That's a Jehovah's Witness doctrine. Uh. So, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the gift of the Spirit is associated with the fulfilled kingdom. In the New Testament, the kingdom is not here. It's not given, though we're members of it. It's the most bizarre thing. You know, we're, I guess we're used to it because most of us here have been here in doctrine for a lot of years. But truly, when you think about it, it to have all the blessings of the kingdom and not have the kingdom seems bizarre. You know, to leave us behind in a world that is evil and dark, and yet to be to have heaven itself in our heart is the most amazing thing. It actually is to give us awe, wonder, and make us witnesses, make us truly alive, because you've been given all of heaven, and you're not there. So it's kind of like this. You went to heaven. You say you died, right? You died with Christ. This is your baptism. Baptism of the Spirit means you died with Him and you're raised with Him. So you died. You went to heaven. You knelt before the Father as Jesus the Son was sitting, standing by your side. You knelt down before the Father and the Father put His hand on you and He spoke blessing to you. He blessed you with everything that he had that he could give to a human being. And then he sent you back to earth. And he said, go now back to earth. After you've died and been here and been blessed by me beyond your wildest dreams, blessings that you cannot lose. And then he says, now go back to earth and live. Really live the life of heaven that you've come to see. And that's happened to all of us. And at Pentecost, where Peter, if you skip down to chapter 2, verse 14, you'll see it. Um, <clears throat> this quote, if you look at verse 17, or verse 16, Peter says it. This is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And that's the passage that we just read. Now, it's not, what Joel says here is not fulfilled. Peter didn't say it, what Joel said was fulfilled. He's just using Joel as an example. We, Peter says, have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Don't marvel at this. You know that there's coming a day when God's going to pour out His Spirit upon the whole nation. That's the, that's the essence of Acts chapter 2 here with the quote of Joel. He's not saying Joel was fulfilled. Joel wasn't fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. But Peter is using Joel as an example. He says, look, at the end of at the end, when the kingdom comes, all of Israel is going to be baptized by the Spirit. So don't marvel that right now that we, standing in front of you, have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. 
and the whole church is going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. So this is what God says to us. Do you see in the Old Testament how I'm going to do this? I have spoken of this through all my prophets, that at the end, when the kingdom comes, I am going to make them a kingdom of righteous, holy people, and I'm going to pour out my spirit upon them, and I'm going to be their king, and they're going to be my people. I'm going to indwell them. And now during this age, you are my people. I indwell you. I've poured out my spirit upon you. But I haven't given you the kingdom yet. And no Old Testament prophet knew of this age. This age when people would be blessed by the things that God said were associated with his kingdom. And they would not be in the kingdom. And that is the ecclesia, the church. And you and I are a part of it. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for all things that you provide us with that are through your spirit, through your love, and the the tremendous blessings that we see. Uh, They are depicted, Father, in your word. We ask, Father, that you guide and direct us uh, through your spirit into the things that we need to know to fulfill the ministry that you have given us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.